it is a terrible, hot, sticky, annoying day, and your car breaks down. Because our cars never seem to break down on a beautiful day, right? Have you ever had, had a day where you're like, oh, I've been stuck inside. I wish I had a good excuse to be outside. And you come out and the battery's dead. You go, thank you, God, for this excuse. No, that is never how your car works. Your car waits until it is rainy and hailing. Yesterday, Fran and I were in hail as we drove on the freeway. I thought the roof of the car was going to cave in these giant hailstones that were coming down. It's a day like that, or it's a million degrees, or it's miserable. It is just never fun. We never have a breakdown when we have the time to at least enjoy being in the outdoors. And the really frustrating part is that most of us don't know what to do when the car breaks. Because if we're honest, most of us don't actually know how these things work. We know enough to put gas in it. We know enough to drive it. Hopefully we've learned that we have to get an oil change every once in a while, but I'm guessing some of you are very behind on that, even at this moment. And we just don't get it. And the worst experience, when you are having a broken down car and you're confused and you're frustrated and it's miserable out, is to then try to pull out the user manual. <laughs> the user manual is completely useless, right? There are two kinds of pages in your user manual. The first kind are pages like this. Oh, thank you so much, Toyota, for paying someone to draw a picture of the car and a picture of me. I was unclear where I began and where the car ended, and so thank you so much for offering me this page. How many thousands of dollars did the artist and printing costs for this page in a manual cost? It is incredibly frustrating. But then you flip the page and the next page goes, open up the blah, 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 and there's just all these words that we don't understand. And so it's either really simplistic, stupid stuff, or it's really difficult to understand stuff that's no good. Maybe you've had this experience where you go, oh, I'm trying to figure out how to fix my key. And you go to key, key, start. You go to all these other buttons. And after 20 minutes in the index, you see ignition. And you go, oh, ignition. Because it's just, it's just not written in a way that helps us. Some engineer somewhere thinks that these manuals are good for us and they just don't usually work. I think it's an unfortunate um, side effect, but maybe a true side effect, that you probably have heard a preacher at some point in your life call the Bible God's instruction manual for our life. And there's probably been a time where just like your car manual, you've opened it up, you've tried to thumb through an index, which it frustratingly does not have, and you're trying to find answers in a difficult and hard moment. You are broke down in your life and you want the manual to help you and you open it up and you can't even figure out where to go. Now, I don't want to be misheard here. I love the Bible. The Bible is a beautiful gift of God and I'm not trying to denigrate the beautiful gift of God. But I think we want to be honest with the fact that our Bibles are a little hard for us to navigate. Uh, if you have not noticed, you are studying a book that is written in largely dead languages, that is thousands of years old, that instead of using page numbers, uses verse and chapter numbers. What other book in your life do you pick up that uses that? And then the organization, and I am not making any of this up, it is split into two testaments. Those testaments are, are grouped together by genres, and then those genres, they're listed by length primarily. That's right, not chronological order, length. They put the longest one first and the shortest one last. 
It may sound crazy. Paul's letters are not in the right order. They are from longest to shortest. That is not a user-friendly book to use, okay? And you have maybe had this moment in your life where you wanted to open the Bible and you wanted to hear a word from God and you wanted something that would help your life and you opened up to the middle Isaiah and you heard something about Babylonians and Egyptians and wars and you go, well, where's the part with Jesus? And like, you go through two-thirds of it, Jesus doesn't even show up yet and it's just really, really frustrating. And when I hear people talk about how much they love the Bible, it's usually people that have advanced degrees in the Bible. You know, they're like, oh, this word is so deep. If you just know all the context. I'm like, yes, if you spent eight years of your life studying away in a library, it's great. But sometimes for the rest of us, it's a little dense and a little hard to cut through. Even when we get to the right passage, they use words that sound unusual and strange and don't make a lot of sense. Here's the most frustrating part of it. You can be a good student and know your way around it and all of these things, and it can still make zero difference. (laughs) Jesus talks often about Pharisees who knew the Bible really, really well. And he said, you study the scriptures thinking it has the words of life and you are right, but you are still way far away from them. You have memorized the words and you are still no better a person for it. This is what Paul talks about often, like in Romans, where he says, the law is great, but the law by itself never actually transforms us to where we need to go. And you have probably known someone in your life that is a great Bible student, maybe even who was a preacher who speaks in front of people every week. Hopefully it's not me who knows the word of God well, but they are still a total and utter jerk face all the time, right? And it makes us a little frustrated. So I'm having a hard time. I have a spiritual breakdown. I pull out the owner's manual. I can't figure it out. And then when I talk to a guy who does know how to figure it out, he's no better at life than I am. And it can feel futile and frustrating. And we understand why our friends who do not believe in God or who do not read scripture go, you people are wacky for opening up that book and trying to find answers in it, given how difficult it is. I want to talk today a little bit about how we get to a place where we understand better. About how we handle confusion. In the moment of spiritual confusion, in the moment where your life's car is broken down and the manual doesn't feel too helpful, how do we get to a place where we understand what God wants us to know in that minute? And we're going to do this by walking through several stories in John to begin with that will have people who are confused. There's a lot here, and I'm going to go a little fast. If you have questions, that's what the Q&A cards are for. But I want to kind of hit these stories real quick to see what Jesus does. Because often, if you go to church, including to this church, and talk to a preacher, including to me, and you go, oh, I have this problem, a lot of times you go, well, let's open up our Bibles. And what's really interesting is that Jesus doesn't do that in most of these situations. All right, uh, I'm going to start in John 3. We've got a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a leader of the Jewish people. He comes to Jesus at night because he's embarrassed to be seen in public with Jesus. And Jesus says, well, listen, you've got to be born again. And we've heard that phrase a lot, probably in our culture. We talk about, quote, unquote, born-again Christians. Jesus says, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus says, how can someone be born again when they're old? 
Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. To which all their mothers said, Amen, right? And so it goes on. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of the water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. A little bit later in that chapter, there's this, this summary sentence. For the one who God has sent speaks the word of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. So Nicodemus goes, how am I saved? How am I born again? How do I make my life new? And Jesus goes, well, the Spirit's got to do that. The Spirit's going to do it however he pleases, because he tends to not ask your advice first. Another story, John 4. Jesus is at the well. We know the woman at the well who comes to Jesus, and they have a conversation. They talk a little bit about her personal life. When it gets a little too personal, she changes the topic to debate religion, because that's what people do when they're just a little hint. If you're having a spiritual conversation with someone and it starts to get personal, they will immediately bring up the Crusades or how old, you know, how can dinosaurs exist and all this kind of thing, because that is the easiest way out of a spiritual conversation where you have to talk about what's really going on in your heart, is to have an intellectual conversation about a Bible debate. So hers is the temple. He started to talk about her life and she goes, ooh, that's a little personal, mister. Let's talk about the temple. Samaritans think the temple should be here. Jews think the temple should be there. Who's right? Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestor worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Uh, sorry, go back one more. I, I, I got you away. Oh, I may have not added this. There it is. A time is coming, Jesus said, and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For there are kinds of worship, they are the kinds of the worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So she's confused. Which place do we worship? And he goes, forget about where, just know that you have to do it with the Holy Spirit. Let's go to the next passage, John 6. This is uh, Jesus out in the wilderness, and he has just told these people, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, for us Christians who have some understanding of the Lord's Supper, we go, oh, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. For these Jews who live before the Lord's Supper is instituted, kind of sounds like Jesus is preaching cannibalism, okay? And so they're very confused. They're very frustrated. What's going on here? Jesus, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. He says, you guys don't get what I'm talking about. That's because the spirit is not made clear to you. Because the spirit gives you life and understanding. And you'd get this if you had the spirit. John 7, Jesus is having debates with a group of people about who the Messiah is. And they're like, you can't be the Messiah because blah, 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 blah. And he goes, well, I can't be the Messiah because blah, 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 blah. That's a terrible summary of chapter 7. But at the end of it, Jesus says, on the greatest and last day of the festival, he stands, says in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this, he meant the spirit with whom... Well, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that point, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. 
So we're debating all the day long about who the Messiah is. I'm telling you, this is how you'll know it. The Spirit will be manifest in your life when you see the Messiah come. Next passage, John 16. This is the passage that Bruce uh, shared with us, I think, last week. This is the passage in which the disciples are the confused one. Jesus is starting to talk about his death and his crucifixion. And they're all saying, no, Jesus, no, you can't do that. You can't die. You can't go away. And this is what he says as they debate the legitimacy of his crucifixion. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what, uh, that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Jesus goes, I get that you're overwhelmed right now. We're not going to try to teach you anything else tonight. The Holy Spirit's going to come and we'll explain the rest of it to you. You could do a lot of great, deep analysis of these passages on a whole variety of issues. I want to give you something very, very simple today. When, you, when there is a confusion in this book about truth or about the meaning of Scripture or about what's going on in someone's life, Jesus' response over and over again is the Holy Spirit will clean up your confusion. The Holy Spirit will help the stuff you don't get and help you get it. You guys remember Magic Eye Books? I am terrified of how many of you may be young enough not to remember Magic Eye Books. But nonetheless, there are these, um, uh, the blue part there is what they would have looked like. You could bought a book with just pictures like that. And depending on who you were, you could or could not stare at them in such a way that you'd start to see an image like this bird on the side. Apparently that bird is in that blue. The only way I could ever get them to work is I would cross my eyes and then uncross them. And that's the way I could figure them out. But other people would like stare at him and slowly pull him out. It was a weird period in the 90s where everyone in America was just sitting with a book two inches in front of their face trying to see these pictures. I think it's an okay metaphor for what the Holy Spirit does. Life looks like that blue. And the Holy Spirit slowly starts to give you clarity and edges and says, no, 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 this is what's going on. When you read that Bible story and you go, I don't know what it means, or you get into a debate about what's right or wrong and you feel confused, the Holy Spirit steps in and goes, no, 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 let's simplify this for you. Let's explain it. As Jesus says to his disciples, there's a lot that you can't understand today, but don't worry, the Holy Spirit will be your tutor. He will help you along the way to figure out what you've got to know. Um... I have to make a confession that I kind of rewrote this sermon a bit after this week. Uh, I was in a session. It was super helpful. It was the Holy Spirit in John by a guy named John York who teaches at Lipscomb. And he went through all of these passages. I promise I had already written the sermon. I was not just copying his. But he went through all these passages and talked about it. And the thing that he said was the thing that made me change my sermon. Because originally, I was thinking that the Holy Spirit, I was going to talk to him almost as like a Bible study aid. Right? Once you go to study the Bible, then the Holy Spirit just is like, uh, oh, this is a terrible metaphor. It's like Game Genie. It just makes everything a little bit easier. If you played Nintendo, oh, this room, is, I, that was a very bad example. It was a thing in video games that made the video games easier. Anyway, um, the idea is that, you know, your study is more fruitful with the Holy Spirit. 
But John said really clearly, this is not about understanding up here. We do that with John. As Western European Enlightenment philosophy inheriting people, if you don't know what that means, all it means is we think too much with this and not enough with this. And John is trying to say the Spirit will help you to understand in a deeper, richer way, not just a library way. I read a book in high school or college. It was really helpful for me to think about these things uh, called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Uh, it's a book. It's basically a philosophical book. And it talks about East, Eastern and Western thought. And basically he talks about it via the metaphor of a motorcycle. He says Western thought is that you go to school and you take a class on motorcycle maintenance and you learn all the parts and you learn how they fit and then you try to fix them that way. So you come in very clinical and go, well, this motorcycle isn't starting. I should begin by asking if the carburetor is blah, 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 blah. And we all know people that are kind of like this, that are book learned on something, but don't know how to do anything in real life. And so he said, Western people, the way they do motorcycle maintenance is they take a course on it But then if you brought them into an actual repair shop, they'd be lost. Because the bikes never quite manifest the way they're supposed to. The diagnostics never really work the way they're supposed to. He goes, no, no, no. Real motorcycle maintenance works like Eastern thought. You come up to it, you rev the engine, you go, oh, that doesn't sound right. What do you mean it doesn't sound right? Well, it just doesn't sound like it's supposed to. I can tell you, I know that this motorcycle isn't working. And they'll go, well, the first thing we should check according to the manual is to go to this. And he goes, no, 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 no. This, this feels like a carburetor problem. And you go, I, th- I hope there's a carburetor on motorcycles. I'm just making this up as I go. But, you know, like, I feel like that's the right one. And he says there's like an intuition. There's a dance. You, you speak with the bike. People who ride a lot, they go, the way it's moving and the way it's accelerating, I can just, it and I are communicating. And for, as Western people, we go, that's ridiculous. And people who had these experiences go, no, it's not ridiculous. There's ways of knowing something that's not just up here. There's a way of knowing something that's truer and deeper. And often in Western thought, we always think about up here. So even as I wrote this sermon and I talked about the Holy Spirit bringing clarity, I was thinking the Holy Spirit is like a co-pilot up here in my brain helping tinker my brain. But it's more than that. The Holy Spirit in all of these passages are helping people just get it, to feel it, to in their gut comprehend it. Maybe we all know this experience with loss. Someone you love has just died. And someone goes in and goes, you know, time heals all wounds. And you go, that's true, but get out of my living room, right? Like, I don't feel that at all. That is something that I know up here is right and I don't care. And we've also had those experiences where one day we just go, you know, I'm at peace with losing that person. And suddenly all of this stuff about it's going to get better starts to move its way down a little bit. This is why ancients talk about, we always talk about emotion in our heart. Ancient people actually use gut more often and we change it to heart in your Bibles. But down into your guts, your entrails, like a sense of like, oh, Now I understand this. I want to spend a little time real quick in Ephesians 1 to talk about this. Because I think Paul talks about this in a really helpful way. What the Spirit does and how he helps us to understand and understand in a deeper way. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, 
I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you know the hope of which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and the incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. Again, I cannot give you the full nuance of this passage in this moment. But what he says here is, I want you to have the wisdom of revelation and knowledge. And he suggests when the Spirit comes, you're going to get it. These things he says they're going to understand are not things they're unaware of. They know the riches that are in Christ. They know the power that God has given them. They, they have all this stuff. This has been taught in Bible class before. But what Paul says is, I want the eyes of your heart to be opened by a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And I don't know how else to say it, but there's just like this aha moment where you go, oh, that's what we're talking about. And I, I don't know I'm great at explaining to you what that'll look like or what that'll feel like. But for students of scripture, people who, try, who go to church and, and read God's word and try to understand God's will for their life, there are just these moments where you read something that you've read a million times and suddenly a word pops out and you go, why is that word there? And then you think about it in a way you've never thought about it and you go, oh, uh, this just came to my mind. It's a lot like a crossword or a Sudoku puzzle, right? That you've been puzzling away at, you've been working at, and you've tried everything. You're like, there is no answer. That isn't right. And for some reason in your brain, you go, what if you put the four there? And you go, well, if I put the four there, then this, oh, that's how it works. And you just, it just hits you. You go, oh, that's what's going on. And what God promises is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit working in your life so that you go through Scripture, sometimes you have that experience where you're like, oh, I get this. Not just I know the words, not just I can repeat a memory verse, but I understand it at a deep, personal level. Uh, this is a man named Landon Saunders. Some of you probably heard Bruce speak of him. Uh, Bruce and I get to hang out with him about once every six months or so with some other preachers in New England. Landon has been a teacher and preacher for a long, long time in churches. And Landon talks a lot about the woman who anointed Jesus' feet. And there's this phrase that Landon talks about a lot. Jesus sees this woman who snuck into the Pharisee's house. And Jesus looks at the Pharisee and says, do you see this woman? And every time that I've ever read that passage, it is a simple act of fact. Hey, your security let this lady in. Have you noticed what's going on? At some point in Landon's life, I think the Holy Spirit revealed to him, there's a much bigger sentence there. Do you see her? Do you know who she is? Do you understand her life? Do you care about her? Is she important enough that you'd give any of your heart to help her? Or is she just another blip on your radar, just another fly in the room? Do you see her? 
That is a deep, deep sense of that passage. That's an understanding of God's word that is, is down in here, not just up in here. And you don't get that until you trust God's spirit to start teaching you and instructing you and moving in you. That is the kind of enlightenment, the kind of wisdom, the kind of clarification that we seek when uh, the Holy Spirit helps us. It's a transformation. I was this week, I was with my buddy Peter. Uh, I love hanging out with Peter. He is a minister at a church in New York, and he is Australian. And so there's a lot of great things about him. We have a similar ministry context that we can talk about. I can talk about cricket and rugby, and he is relatively with me, which is not a common thing. And he also just has an awesome Australian accent. Who does not want to have lunch with somebody with an Australian accent? We just sit there and go, wow, that's so cool. How you talk? Right? So I was with Peter, and Peter said something this week. He was at this conference about the Holy Spirit. He said something that maybe you have been thinking. He said, you know, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit for a couple days now. He says, I've been in a lot of classes telling me who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does and the characteristics of the Holy Spirit and scriptures about the Holy Spirit. He goes, nobody has ever once talked about experiencing the Holy Spirit. And you maybe feel that way about this sermon series. And in defense of us, uh, of me, the Spirit's hard because the Spirit is always talked about in passive verbs in the New Testament. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are led by the Holy Spirit. You're not leading the Spirit. You're not filling yourself. Like it's something that happens to you. And frankly, we totally misunderstand the Spirit if I gave you four steps to guarantee the Spirit has to fill you. Because Jesus talked about that earlier today, right? The Spirit does whatever he wants to do. And so if I gave you a sermon about how to force the Spirit to be involved in your life, I clearly don't understand how he works according to the New Testament. But that being said, we don't talk about this transformational thing, this way that we become different people and what it looks like and what it feels like and how it works. Even in the sermon today about discussing um, how we might come to a place where the Spirit helps explain and clarify our lives to us. I don't feel like I've talked about it experientially well enough. I'm going to try my best. I think there's three things that we want to do Three ways that I have found that the Spirit works in my life this way. Kind of a three-step process. And it doesn't guarantee you the Spirit will do it. It just, it helps. It just helps. Okay? It's like, how you can't make the plants grow, but we can at least put out some fertilizer and make sure it's in sun. Right? Three things I think we want to do if we want the Spirit to clarify things in our life. The first is to ask. To ask God for the Holy Spirit. I think we're going to do a sermon on this. Jesus has this really simple passage where he goes, okay, you guys are dads and you're terrible people. That's basically what Jesus says. I'm paraphrasing. He's like, you're dads, but you're terrible. But nonetheless, if your kid goes, daddy, can I have some bread? None of you are going to have a snake or a scorpion because even though you're terrible people, you still know how to treat your kids well. He goes, if that is the case, then if you ask the, your father in heaven for the Holy Spirit, he will not give you anything but the Holy Spirit. Amen. Because that's what you asked for. It's the only thing I know of in Scripture that Jesus says, there's no conditions here. If you ask for this, you're going to get it. And so the first thing we should do is ask for the Holy Spirit's presence in our life. Ask in these moments. Spirit, make, make this clearer to me. The second thing is that um, we seek 
to understand. It is going to be very hard for the Holy Spirit to make a scripture clearer to you if you are not spending any time reading any scripture. Right? This is just a logical necessity. Uh, unless you see, like, like in Daniel, a hand writing something upon the wall. Generally speaking, you have to spend time in the Bible for the Spirit to help you understand the Bible better. And so sometimes you're like, God, I wish I understood your word and your will better. And he goes, well, how much are you trying? And so this is why we value Bible study. This is why we do these small groups. So why I'm always kind of encouraging you, come to Bible study, come to Bible study, come to Bible study. It's not just an attendance thing. It's that when God's people gather together, read God's word, try to understand it, and then ask the Spirit to enlighten them, sometimes they get aha moments that aren't happening if I'm at home watching, you know, MasterChef. That's just the way it just kind of works. And finally, we just have to wait. We just have to wait for God to do it. Um, The reality is we get impatient and we find other ways around it. Oh, I've got this really hard decision. And God, I want your wisdom. God, please give me wisdom. God, I asked for it a whole four seconds ago. I don't have it. Can I have it, please? Can I have your wisdom? Okay, you know what? I'm going to go ask my friend Charlize what to do. And whatever she says, that's what I'm going to do. Because Charlize answers the phone, God. You don't. You know, like, this is kind of the way we go about things. And there is a patience. There is a waiting that happens. I am not the best person to tell you about how to experience the Spirit's movement in your life. But I know that these are ways to start. And when we do it, God's will goes from this weird, difficult manual in our hands to this deep, felt, emotional, physical experience of, oh, that's what you want. That's what you've been saying to me all these years. And when you let go and when you have that moment and have that experience and you feel and know that the Spirit, not know, know, but like know that the Spirit has moved, then all of a sudden life gets a lot clearer and you have some sense of where you're going to go. All right. Uh, if you've not been with us before, here's how the rest of our service will go. We're going to sing a song. Um, let me make sure this is how it. Yes. We're going to sing a song. It's kind of a reflection song. If you want to think about the sermon this time, that's great. If you want to sing, that's great. If you have a question about the sermon, just pick up that Q&A card on your pew and start feverishly scribbling on it. Because when it is done, I will collect them and we will do a Q&A period with those questions off the cards. And then after that, we'll have another song. It's kind of a closing song. And at the end of that, I will pray for the prayer requests on those cards. If you want your prayer requests to be anonymous, don't put your name on it. If you don't want it to be anonymous, put your name on it. So two excellent questions today. Um, this one, this first one kind of, I think, um, uh, works along um, the line of uh, what we talked about earlier about how scripture can be confusing for us. Why does the Bible tend to be repetitive at times? So you probably experienced that. Probably where you really experienced it is if you decided you're going to read the New Testament. And so you read Matthew, and then you go to read Mark, and there's a lot of the same stories. They sound almost exactly the same. And then you get to Luke, and uh, I was talking to a friend about this this week. For some reason, I never learned this growing up in church, but the best we know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are connected literarily. Like, literally, the best guess that we have, according to my opinion, 
is that Mark wrote one of them, and then Matthew and Luke, when they wrote their Gospels, used Mark as the beginning skeleton for their Gospel. And so some of the stories they just copied. Now, when I was a kid, I think this would have blown the minds and terrified my grandparents. Oh, no, you're saying the Bible isn't true? No, the Bible is still inspired. God inspired them to copy each other, okay? I mean, it's just... And it's, it's clear, if you, know, if you see, know Greek, you can stare at them side by side, and they're literally the same verbs. Every once in a while, they even maybe conjugate a verb the wrong way together or misspell something the same way together, and you go, ooh, that's interesting. Uh, also, when you start to look at it, you can see passages in Mark that are kind of embarrassing that Matthew and Luke kind of clean up. So um, there's a, a great example of this is, Mark has this passage where he says, Jesus could perform no miracles there because of their lack of unbelief. And you can tell Matthew and Luke looked at it and goes, Jesus couldn't perform miracles. Oh, Mark, that is not what we should have said. And so they make it something for nice, like, uh, and miracles are very difficult there, or, you know, or God chose not to do miracles because of their unbelief, something like that. You can see them, like, cleaning up Mark's mistake. Um, so that's one of the reasons it looks repetitive. Also, I do believe, and again, this is not what I was taught growing up, but I think it's true and it doesn't bother my faith. There were editors of scripture, uh, particularly like Genesis through Deuteronomy. We have good, actually Genesis through like 2 Kings. We have a good reason to believe there was an individual with a particular theological focus that helped edit those books when they put them together in one collection. And that that individual, he or she, chose to just make sure the material had a thematic um, arc to it. And so sometimes it seems like they're saying the same thing over and over again because that editor really thought that was an important point to make. Um, none of this, I'm not saying scripture is not inspired. I believe scripture is inspired by God. I just think that this is the process God chose to use. And as you study these things, you can see sometimes like the seams and such that go, oh, that's how they put this thing together. Um, and that's, you know, it's, it's part of what scripture is. And it's something that's helpful when you do deeper Bible study to understand. All right. Uh, other question I had here, which of the four gospels is your personal favorite and why? Well, thank you for asking about me. Um, my favorite gospel is Luke and it's for a variety of reasons. Luke has the most, uh, scenes that take place around a dinner table. I really like that. Uh, Luke focuses on a few key themes such as proper treatment of poor, um, the full inclusion of women, uh, the movement of the Holy Spirit in the church. Uh, They're all things that I really like about it. Also, Luke is the most Gentile and the most Greek. And so, at least in my mind, I think of him as the most missionary in his approach. Matthew is preaching to Jews that kind of already have some kind of experience with God. I like that Luke is writing to people who know nothing about God's work in the world. And so that's why I like Luke a lot.